have your Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Jude. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. So if you find Revelation, you can just flip back one book and you should find, find Jude there. We are in a three-week series going through this little letter uh, that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote uh, to an unnamed group of Christians, an unnamed church. And, and Stephen began uh, this series for us last week and uh, did a fantastic job with verses 1 and 2. He got the fun text. I got the tough text. Um, I don't know if you've ever played the game. If I could have any job, I'd be a... Uh, you played that with your family. We, we do that sometimes as a family. We talk about if I could go back and, and be anything, what, what would you be? What would you do with your life? Um, so if I could be anything, I would be the publisher's clearinghouse delivery man. Like, in my opinion, that would be the best job of all time, right? Like, what's better than being the person that shows up at someone's door with a giant check and balloons telling them that they just won a million dollars? Like, that's the best That's the best job. I, I, I love getting to be the bearer of good news. Maybe that's why I'm a pastor. I get to preach the gospel, right? It's the best news ever. That's fun. It's fun to get to share good news. Um, my wife is a fifth grade teacher, and um, every year her class participates in an area-wide writing competition. So every every student in her class has to write an essay. Um, the, the topic is, is given out every year. And, um, and the winner this year of this area-wide writing competition came from Melanie's class. Um, but, but not only did her student win the area competition, Melanie got a call last week uh, from the voting committee. Her, her essay was submitted to the statewide competition. And Melanie got a call last week that her student not only won the area competition, she placed first in the entire state in this writing competition. And so Melanie received the call first. So Melanie got to be the one who called uh, this student's mom and to share the news that her daughter had won first place in the state. That's a fun phone call. That's a fun message to deliver. Have you ever gotten to deliver good news? That's good. That's fun. But on the other hand, have you ever had to be the deliverer of hard news? Maybe you're a CPA and you've had to tell a customer that they owe the IRS big time. I've been on the receiving end of that call. Or maybe you're a teacher that's had to tell a parent that her student is failing. Or maybe you're a medical professional and you've had to tell a patient that they're sick, they have a disease. Unless you're a deranged person, right? delivering hard news is not so fun. And as, as Jim begins his letter to this church, he, he tells them that he wanted to write to them concerning uh, the, the salvation that they shared in common. He says in verse 3, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Now that's a fun message, right? That, that we are all united by faith in Jesus Christ. That we are all reconciled by His blood. How Jesus brings us together and makes us one big family. That's a fun message to deliver. I've preached that message. I love getting to preach that message. And it's a message that needs to be shared. Right? Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not untrue. 
It's an absolutely true message. And it's an utterly amazing message. And there's a time for these positive messages. But that time is not all the time. There are times when you have to break away from the preferable and the positive messages in order to faithfully proclaim the full counsel of God. Sometimes there are issues going on that have to be addressed. Sometimes there there are challenging passages that have to be preached. And just to let you know, maybe you're new to our church, it's kind of our MO to just preach through books of the Bible. And so sometimes we get to really fun sections of Scripture. And then those are followed immediately by really challenging passages of Scripture. And we can't just jump over those. We have to preach the challenging passages as well. To continue to preach only positive messages would prove in the end to be unhelpful and even unfaithful to God's truth. And Jude says in verses 3 and 4 that though he wanted to write to them about their salvation that they share in common, he found it necessary instead to write about something else. Urgency necessitated that Jude's preferred message be be tabled, be put aside uh, for a more pressing message to be preached. Namely, that this group of believers, these Christians, needed to contend for the faith that they had received. In short, Jude calls this church to battle. He says, guys, it's time to engage in warfare. The gospel is under attack. Danger is, is lurking. And if you succumb to the threat that is being imposed on you, you're in danger This is not exactly the warm, fuzzy, feel-good message of our common salvation. But the message needed to be heard. It, it was a message that had to be delivered. And so this morning, far from the publisher's clearinghouse check and balloons, I get to be like Jude this morning and spend a few minutes unpacking this not-so-warm and fuzzy message. And and my hope is to help us to see why this message was necessary in the first century and why it's still pertinent for us today. But if I'm honest, if if I'm honest about how I'm feeling in this moment, the weight of this passage, if I'm honest about how I recognize its potential to to offend, to be off-putting, I feel uneasy this morning. And so, if it's okay, I'd like to just pause one more time and just ask for the Lord's help. So let's pray together. Father, we come to a hard passage, especially as we think about how this passage applies to us today, the implications of what Jude is saying and calling us to. Lord, just how uncomfortable it makes us to think about doctrines such as judgment and sin. So Lord, help us. Lord, help me. Give me boldness to speak where you speak and to say what you say. Lord, give all of us ears to hear. Lord, humble us. 
posture us before you. You are creator. You are redeemer. You have rights over our lives. You have right to tell us what is true and what is not. To call us to live in accordance. Lord, you are judge. We will stand before you. May we heed that truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to notice three truths from Jude 3 through 16. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, I want us to notice first a call, then a caution, and then a comfort from these verses. The first thing that I want us to notice, which has already been mentioned, is, is the call for Christians to contend. A call for Christians to contend. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jude 3 and 4. Jude says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude writes, and he warns this group of, of Christians that, that the, the Christian faith was under attack. That certain people had snuck into the camp. There were, there were some who had, who had made their way into the church and, and they, were, they were sabotaging the gospel. They were sabotaging the truth that had been delivered already. And, and in light of this fact, in light of this reality that the gospel was under attack, that the Christian faith was, was under attack. Jude says to these believers, you need to wake up, you need to wise up, and you need to get ready for battle. Contend for the faith, he says. When Jude refers to the faith, he's not referring to faith in the subjective sense, like I have faith or you have faith. He's referring to faith in the objective sense. The faith. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Christian Standard Version puts it, I think, a little more clearly. It says, contend for the faith that was delivered to saints, to the saints once for all. In other words, there, there was a set of beliefs that had been established by Jesus and the apostles that was necessary for the Christian religion. We, we would refer to this as orthodoxy. Orthodox means uh, right idea. Orthos means to cut straight. And doxa means opinion, praise, or glory. And so put together, it's this idea of a straight opinion, a right idea. It refers to something that is true and accurate. And from the beginning, Christianity has taught and held to certain beliefs that are essential to the faith. Without them, you lose Christianity altogether. So doctrines such as the Trinity is an essential belief for us. We believe in a God that is three in one. There is one God who has always eternally existed in three distinct personalities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a tri-unity. He's a trinity. We believe in a doctrine called the hypostatic union. Which means that Jesus, the Son of God, was fully God and fully man at the same time. He had two complete natures. We believe this is a critical, foundational, essential doctrine for our faith. We believe in the exclusivity of Christ, which means that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Acts 
4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus that we sang earlier, and Jesus alone, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through Him. These are foundational doctrines for us. These are orthodox. And by the 4th century, these beliefs began to be articulated through creeds and confessions. But Jude says that the beliefs were already in place in the 1st century, and that without them, you depart from the Christian faith altogether. Maybe some of you are familiar with the name Rob Bell. Rob Bell was at one point in time considered a pastor. I'm not exactly what he considers himself these days. But he wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. I read it. And in the book he poses this question. He says, what if the virgin birth was seriously questioned? Could a person still love God? Could a person still be a Christian? He, he, he kind of pontificates and, and brings this out. That if it were proven to be true that the virgin birth was a lie. Or if a person decided that they couldn't believe in that doctrine, could they still remain a Christian? Would Christianity still stay intact if we, if we lose the virgin birth? And Bell essentially said, yes. He said, even if the virgin birth was dismissed, a person could remain a Christian. And this doctrine was non-essential to Christianity or for having a relationship with God. But here's the problem with, with Bell's conclusion. It goes against 2,000 years of church history. And it goes against the Bible itself. The virgin birth is a core doctrine. Without the virgin birth, Jesus could not have been fully God and fully man. He could not have been sinless because he would have inherited a sin nature from his earthly father. And without Jesus being fully God and fully man, he, without his sinless nature, he could not be an infinitely valuable divine sacrifice for sin. Or... Fully, without being fully human, he couldn't atone for human sin. In other words, without the virgin birth, Christ's substitutionary atonement, his death in our place for our sins, goes out the window and so does our salvation. And that is why we're a church that regularly confesses our faith. And from time to time, we recite things like this. I believe in Jesus Christ. God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And this is why Jude says to us, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contending for the faith, guarding orthodox truth is no trifling matter. It is no trivial matter. Doctrine matters. We are a church that believes doctrine matters. It is eternally significant. And in the first century, what was going on was that certain people were teaching things contrary to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. They were perverting the truth. They were twisting it and bending it to accommodate their desires to the detriment of themselves and to all who followed their lead. But notice specifically how Jude says this group of false teachers was perverting the truth. Jude says they are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality. See, it wasn't merely a matter of, of twisting doctrine. This, this group of 
of false teachers was, was abusing the doctrine of grace. They were saying that because the Christian faith is based upon God's grace, God's undeserved kindness, that, that it was not based upon our works, that you could live however you please. There were grace abusers in the church, using the gospel as a, as a license for sin. And Jude says to this church that they need to combat this heresy. When we talk about defending the faith, we're, we're not only talking about defending doctrinal orthodoxy, we're also talking about defending moral orthodoxy. Defending the right ideas about how we are called to live as Christians. As soon as we enter this arena, some of, your, some of you guys' legalism flag goes up. Oh, if you talk about morals, you're, you're being a legalist. Well, Jesus had a lot to say about the way that we live our lives. In fact, in a few weeks, we're diving into a seven-week series on the Sermon on the Mount. And when we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, what we discover is that Jesus had all kinds of things to say about the righteousness that we're called to live in that exceeds that of the Pharisees. That He calls us to be wholehearted and undivided followers of God, complete people with wives Conformed to God's character. That He calls us to walk in faithfulness in, in every aspect of our lives. In fact, this is what discipleship is. It's walking in submission and obedience to Jesus in every facet of life. And this is exactly the problem going on in the first century that Jude addresses. These, these false teachers had, had crept into the church and they were using the grace of God as an excuse for living in sexual immorality. They're, they were perverting the gospel and using it as a means of living in sin. Notice what Jude says, verse 10. He says, these counterfeit Christians were behaving like irrational animals who follow their instincts. Verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds. Verse 16, they live according to their desires. And, and Jude's conclusion in verse 4 is that, and thus they deny their Lord and Master Jesus Christ. In other words, to deviate from the New Testament's teaching regarding sin, regarding morality, is to deny Jesus as Lord. Now, there's an unpopular message. Living according to the truth is not only a matter of us getting the doctrine of the Trinity in place. It is also getting God's Lordship over our sexuality in place and submitting to what Scripture says regarding it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. The Apostle John here is saying, true Christians live lives in accordance with God's will, in accordance with God's word. This is a pertinent message for us today. 
because grace abuse is alive and well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. And deviation from the scripture's teaching on moral issues is rampant. There, there are many today who claim to be Christians, but who reject the Bible's teaching regarding things like gender and sexuality. Some today are attempting to do revisionist history when it comes to what the Bible says concerning our sexuality. For example, this is one example. Some are attempting to say that Scripture's renunciation of the sin of homosexuality only refers to older men being with, with younger men or that it only speaks of, of a non-committed sexual flippancy, hookup sex. But that it does not refer to consensual and committed monogamy. In other words, some are trying to say that the real issue with homosexuality is commitment and monogamy, not heterosexuality. Some try to say that Jesus never directly or explicitly said anything about this. Although Jesus did say that the paradigm for marriage is Genesis 1 and 2. He said the paradigm is creation. A man and a woman together in a covenant relationship until death. In fact, Jesus consistently and repeatedly affirmed what the Old Testament scripture said. He repeatedly said things like, Have, haven't you read? Is it not written in the scriptures? What is Jesus doing? He's, he's authorizing the authority of the Old Testament. He affirmed the authority of the apostles to teach all that the, the Spirit would remind them that He said. You remember what Jesus said in, in John 14 through 16? The Holy Spirit is going to be given to you and He's going to bring to remembrance everything that I've said to you and you're going to pass it along. In other words, the New Testament, the writings of Peter and Paul, are actually Jesus' teachings. There is no pitting Paul against Jesus. What they wrote, Jesus gave them authority to say. And from this apostolic teaching, we have the New Testament Scriptures. And we have 2,000 years of church history that is held to a consistent ethic regarding God's design for our lives as it relates to sex and marriage. And what Jude is saying to this church is, he's saying, contend for this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contending for the faith is protecting God's good design and instruction for our lives, even when it is countercultural to do so. Even when it is contrary to natural feelings and inclinations. I know this is unpopular. I know this makes some of you so uncomfortable right now. But, but let me bring you in a little bit. I have, I have good friends struggling with same-sex attraction. Friends who confess Jesus as Lord and want to walk in truth and they want to live godly lives, but recently they've read blogs or books from supposed brothers and sisters in the faith, supposed Christians justifying homosexuality. 
And what's ensued is all kinds of inner conflict and turmoil and confusion. And do you know what these justifications are for our brothers and sisters in the faith who are struggling with this sin? Struggling with this temptation? And it's a millstone around their neck. It's a cinder block lie wrapped around the neck of those struggling who are daily entrenched with this battle in the flesh. So if you love your brother, you dare not despise them by calling what is evil good and what is good evil. You dare not think that justifying the sin is loving your brother. Jesus called that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You dare not sit idly by and say nothing in the name of being culturally couthed as if it's of no consequence. We must contend for the faith. That's what Jude is saying here. And, to be clear, lest you think I'm picking on a pet sin, let me be clear. Any form of a sexually immoral lifestyle, or any sinful lifestyle for that matter, and we're talking lifestyles here, habitual, entrenched sin, a direction choosing to walk in disobedience. We're not talking about struggling in many ways. We're not talking about stumbling. We're talking about a lifestyle here. Any sexually immoral or deviant lifestyle, fornication, adultery, pornography, what Jude is saying is it is a rejection of the faith. It is denying Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. He says, when we live in sensuality, which is another word for sexual immorality, we are denying our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. A sexually immoral lifestyle is a rejection of the Christian faith. And this leads us to the second truth we see in this passage. Not only does you call for Christians to contend, but secondly, he cautions them about the dangers of counterfeit Christianity. Counterfeit Christians. Verses 5 through 7. We're going to try to go through this quickly. Verses 5 through 7 are a warning about what happens when we abandon the faith. So maybe you're like, man, Andy's being super dramatic this morning. This is super heavy. Let me, let me, let me read you Jude's warnings. Verse, verse, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and spurs and pursued natural unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Each verse, 5, 6, and 7, highlight God's judgment upon a group who did not persevere in His truth, who did not walk in His truth, who, who walked away from God's truth and God's ways and went their own way. We're, we're probably most familiar with the last example He gives, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. This, this tends to be one we're familiar with. These were two cities that were known for their rampant uh, immorality. And really the biggest issue with Sodom and Gomorrah was that it wasn't just sexual immorality. It's that they were victimizing and oppressing people in that city. 
I mean, it was, it was gross sin. So much so that it says an outcry made its way to heaven. These, these victims were crying out to God for what was happening to them until God finally said, enough! And judged Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not the only example Jude gives here. He also gives the example of, of the Israelites who God rescued out of Egypt. They were under oppression under Pharaoh. God rescues them through the Red Sea and, and they're headed towards Canaan, but they begin to grumble against the Lord. They lost their faith in God. And you know what God does? He lets them wander for 40 years until an entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness, never making it to the promised land. Why? Because they abandoned their faith in God. And then Jude gives this example of angels in rebellion. This is likely a reference to Genesis chapter 6. And if you want a little context here, there's uh, this, this book of, is not found in the Bible. It's the book of First Enoch. But it, it kind of expounds on what was going on here. But these angels did not stay in their rightful position that God had put them in. They rebelled against God. And so God judged them. But the point here is that Jude is highlighting what happens when we don't persevere in the faith, when we don't protect, when we don't contend for the faith, or preserve the faith. If you lose truth, you're in danger of God's judgment. That's the big idea here. So why do we, why do we need to contend? Why is this such a big deal? Because if you don't contend, if you don't persevere in the faith, you're in danger of God's judgment. So Jude here is saying, take heed. Sin and heresy are no trifling matters. If you're living in sin this morning, if you are repeatedly walking in a pattern of disobedience to the Lord, what Jude is pleading for you to do this morning is to wake up and to heed the warning that sin is no trifling matter. And as a church, in a culture in which some things that God calls evil, the culture calls good, we go, man, we don't want to be that church. We don't want to be associated with the Freddie Phelps of the world. We don't want to be fundamentalists. We don't, we don't want to be seen as those people. Church, if we love our city, if you love your neighbor, then we need to stand for truth. Not in a finger-wagging way. Jesus said, don't seek the living among the dead. But because we love our brother, we stand for truth. Because we love our sister, we believe God's word is good news, that his ways are good, right, and perfect. These things matter. Verse 8, Jude begins to give kind of a character description of counterfeit Christians. Let's just read it, and then I want to highlight a few trademark characteristics of counterfeits. Verse 8. <laughs> Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. For when the angel, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of Cain to Balaam's heir and, and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As 
they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. We don't have time to dig into all of this. Jude, Jude is using what would have been in the first century modern day examples, modern day pictures that these readers would have understood to make, make the point that, that these, these counterfeits are they're, they're selfishly driven, they're, they're uh, arrogant and haughty, and ultimately you'll, you'll, you'll know them by their fruit. So let me highlight three trademark characteristics of counterfeit Christians. First, they, they rely on subjective authority. Jude here says that these people rely on their dreams. Instead of relying on the, the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, instead of relying on God's word, instead of relying on, on a tradition that's been held by the church for centuries, they, they rely on dreams. Okay, this is classic cult, right? Any major religious cult, typically that leader relies on some form of subjective authority. They had a dream, they had a vision, God spoke to them, and ultimately they reject the once-for-all faith that has been delivered. They reject the authority of God's word. So there's a subjective authority that they rely on. Two, there's a selfish ambition. Jude says that, that these counterfeits are shepherds feeding themselves. They're in it for their own gain. They're not protecting sheep. They're, they're protecting self-interest. He says at the end here that they show favoritism to gain an advantage. That, that they are, their ambitions are, are driven by selfish gain. And thirdly, they're marked by sinful actions. They follow their own sinful desires. They defile the flesh. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus tells us when it comes to, to leaders in the church, that you're to evaluate them by the fruits of their lives. And that's essentially what Jude is saying here. He's saying, pay attention to, to what motivates these guys. And what marks their lives? Are they marked by, by holiness and purity and righteousness? Are they marked by sticking to the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints? Or are they marked by selfish ambition and greed and pride? 
And if we need a reference point, we look to Jesus, right? We look to Jesus. It's been said before that the easiest way to identify a counterfeit is to know the real thing. Study Jesus. Look at his life. And the counterfeits will be, be obvious. Jesus repeatedly said, I have come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He repeatedly said, have you not read? He points us to the scriptures. His authority was in the Father. His authority was in the word that had been spoken. We look at Jesus and we look at his motivation. It was completely selfish. Jesus was, was driven by self-sacrifice. He said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was perfectly righteous. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see a man contending for the faith. Ultimately, by giving up his own life, he shed his blood in the fight against sin. And he did it all for you and for me. And so this call to contend is ultimately a call to follow Jesus. That's, that's what Jude's pointing us to here. Contend for the faith. Look to Jesus is what the author of Hebrews says. The author and the finisher of our faith. And as we close, I want us to notice lastly the comfort that Jude offers us as we seek to contend. A comfort for concerned Christians. Let's look at verse 16. Referring to these counterfeit Christians, he says these people are discontented grumblers. They live according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, beloved, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. Since they don't have the Spirit, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're devoid of God's Spirit. Here's the comfort. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. He says, they're devoid of the Spirit, but if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. Isn't that a comfort for us this morning? That we have been given the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, that will guide us into all truth. It's the Holy Spirit, Jude says, that will keep you from stumbling. Look, look at verse 24. That to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence full of glory without blemish. The Holy Spirit keeps you from stumbling, keeps you from falling the way of the counterfeit, keeps you from, from dying in your faith. He keeps you persevering in the faith. The Holy Spirit is a comfort because He keeps you. He is able to present you before God without blemish. That's your hope this morning. If you're, if you're caught in a sin, here's the call. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And though your sins were as scarlet, you should be made white as snow. Though you had a heart of stone, He'll give you a heart of flesh. A heart that desires to obey Him. That desires to walk in His ways. A heart filled with His Spirit that will guide you into all truth so that you walk in obedience to Jesus. 
He will convict you, Jesus said, of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will strengthen you to contend for the faith. So here is our comfort, church, this morning as we are called to this hard task. We have been given the Holy Spirit of God. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For we have not been given the spirit of fear by which we shrink back in fear. But we have been given the spirit of God by which we cry out, Abba, Father, God calls us his sons and daughters because of the Holy Spirit. And we cry out to him in intimacy and in need and he helps us. He is able to strengthen those who are feeble needed and weak. And in a smoldering flax he will not quench and a bruised reed he will not break. Hope. The Holy Spirit and church contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Father, you call us the truth. You say some hard things. God made in our own image. God, give us faith today to believe that your ways are good, right, and perfect. That they're worth following, not only just following, but contending for. That you are ushering in a kingdom that is beautiful. And so, Jesus, you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for your kingdom. Would you place it within our hearts? Would you help us as a church to live for the advancement of your kingdom? God, help us to know this morning that it's good news. So Lord, those who are struggling, those who perhaps need to repent, Lord, would you grant the grace for them to repent this morning, to walk in your ways. God, those who struggle like I do with cowardice, Lord, would you embolden us? Would you help us to see that your ways are good, right, and perfect? That it really is good news. Lord, work in us. Work in us a faith that leads us to content. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.